My name is Tom Chick, and I am not playing Victorian Masterminds. <laughs> and this is Asan Lopez, and I am not playing Spellfire. Uh, where uh, Mike Pullman is on assignment this week. He'll be joining us in two weeks. Boo! Yeah. Uh, so the reason I'm not playing Victorian Masterminds, Hassan, uh, is I, you know, I, after you talked about it, I think, uh, I don't know if it was last, it might have been a couple of episodes ago. Uh, right. You sold me on it. The the fellows who made it, I, I really like both of them. Uh, I also really liked how you explained that it's, hey, it's a straight-up Euro. It's got some cute, whimsical theming that's not ancient Egypt or a medieval village or orcs. Uh, they they did their best, but it's not a very it's not a, a Meritrashy game. People are going to look at the little minis of the Eiffel Tower and the White House, and those are just tokens. They might as well be cardboard pieces. It's a it's a fairly simple, pretty streamlined Euroe worker placement design. Absolutely. So I broke it. So actually, that convinced me. I was like, okay, I'm I'm down with that. So I broke it out. Uh, for a couple of friends of mine, specifically for one whose favorite game, and I, I, whenever he says this, I think he's trolling me, he says his favorite game is Agricola. <laughs> I don't believe anyone's famous game is a, favorite game is, is Agricola. Agricola is such old school conventional right. worker placement, but he swears by he likes that kind of simple worker placement Euro he, stuff. Yeah, he's like from 15 years ago or something. Exactly. Like yeah. Stepped into a time machine. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. He's like the kind of guy who's like still only listening to Sinatra songs or something. But <laughs> so I, I got it out for for him, my friend, and he's got this great computer brain, uh, and he tends to be a super good sport and play pretty much any game. Um, so I I wanted him to see Victorian Masterminds, and I wanted to try it. We had a couple other people at the table who uh, are. But prefer simpler games, and I thought, hey, this is a great game to show them. So I showed it to them. I I, I thought I I was prepared to teach it. I, I think I taught it pretty well. It's a pretty easy game to teach anyway. We started playing it, and early on, my friend who I specifically wanted to see this game got hit a couple of times with the whole saboteur mechanic, mm. which is a which is a cool tricky way of. In, in worker placement, normally you put your dude down and you do something. But in Victoria Masterminds, you put your dude down and there's a chance that the activity will be deferred and it might get canceled if somebody uses a saboteur on top of them. Yeah. So a couple of his early turns got canceled by saboteurs. And he, I think at that point, checked out and decided, <laughs> well, I don't like this, and kind of sat there with his arms folded and wasn't even really trying to get points. <laughs> and and at the end came the, the like far and away the lowest score even with these other two guys who aren't necessarily uh advanced gamers they like simpler games they beat them and and afterwards i was like well K kyle this seemed like something you would like it's straight worker placement it's very simple um wh what was the deal he's like oh, i don't i don't like games where you can randomly have your turn canceled <laughs> And, and I, that drove me crazy because it's not random. It's the whole yeah. idea of you wait until someone's saboteur is played. You, right. You're super careful about when. Like, it's not random. It's a matter of bluffing and psychology. And I'm convinced that the problem is my friend Kyle doesn't like any game that has elements of human psychology, bluffing, uh, right. built into the design. Right. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, the other two guys, they liked it. Uh, cool. But well, the guy who I wanted to like it, he, <laughs> and he'll try it again. I'll, uh, you know, he's a, he's a good sport. But uh, 
I just couldn't believe it when he rolled out that complaint that his right. that his turn was quote randomly canceled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in his defense, I can see it. It's it's not a game that favors intense optimization and efficiency right. calculating, which right. I, I I see the appeal of that in games like Agricola, which is which can be extraordinarily punishing if you haven't really thought carefully about how to feed your family and stuff like that, right? And that that style of Eurogame worker placement, um, they tend to be more on the complex side and the brain burning side. And Victorian Masterminds is not that for sure. It's it's lighter and fluffier. But um, but I agree with you that that the saboteur mechanism is something that you you kind of have to learn how to use it, and you actually get better at using it and better at predicting it as you as as sort of the game goes on. So yeah. it's kind of unfortunate that he got hit with that early, um, maybe before he figured out how to how to think about it, right? So. And I really do think it is a matter of he likes those game he likes games that have brutal optimization that are strictly deterministic in terms of. Every yeah. all the information's above board. Uh, yeah. I, it was just kind of my misreading on him liking Agricola because it was worker placement. There are other things about Agricola that he likes specifically that Victorian Masterminds doesn't do. So, right, but right. and also I'm burying the lead here. I really liked Victorian Masterminds. <laughs> so cool. Uh, I was super pleased with it. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, you never know. Like when you throw a recommendation out to friends, be like, hey, you might like this. You actually never know, right? Right. Because because um, game preference is like I don't know. It's like movie preference. Some stuff that I love is totally going to bounce off other people. Um, but yeah, I. I I was surprised by how much I liked it, so I'm, I'm really pleased to hear to to hear that you liked it too. Yeah, yeah. So the reason I'm not playing it is simply because uh, my, my friend sort of put the kibosh on additional playthroughs that <laughs> night, but I, I intend to play it more. So cool. Uh, what I am playing uh, is uh, uh, there's a designer named Ryan Lawcat, and I don't know is that how you say his name? Do you think L A U K A T? Uh, I think so. That's that's good enough for, for me. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he makes games with very distinctive artwork. They tend to be on the lighter side. There's a bit of whimsy and charm to them. Uh, and the one that I really wanted to get to the table, and I finally got to the table, is called Near and Far. Uh, and Near and Far has a campaign concept where you. You bring a character in, and your character gains traits that give them special abilities as you play. Alternatively, you can bring in specific characters who have side quests, and you can do their side quests uh, across the the several games of a campaign. Um, but the first time you play uh, is an introductory game, where you don't really have uh, a unique character. It's just getting you acquainted with the mechanics. So we got to do that, and it was one of those situations where... Uh, it was kind of a last-minute decision. Is There were a few things that I thought we might want to play. Nobody wanted to play those. So I, I rolled out near and far and was like, well, I've been wanting to show you guys this. I didn't know we would do it tonight, but how do you feel about this? And everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, that looks cute. Let's try that. But I realized as I was breaking it out that I was super ill-prepared to teach it. Uh -oh. I yeah, I don't know if you're ever in that situation where, where the games you thought you were going to play don't get played, but an additional one comes out, and you're eager – about it, but you realize, oh god, I haven't looked at the rules in a while. Uh, I'm going to have to do that thing where I fumble through the rules and look it up as we go. Uh, and I, I, that just, I hate that. I'm, I'm constantly worried. Like I feel that teaching a game is something I have to be kind of prepared for. Totally. And you know, I, 
I take notes and everything, and I have a flow for what, how to teach what things. So I had none of this ready for near and far, and I was convinced it was just going to pancake into the table. It was just going to nosedive and fail uh, spectacularly. Um, but I think, too, the credit of Ryan Lockett's charm and whimsy and his designs, uh, it went over very well. Uh, so near and far is a game where you've got it's kind of early on worker placement in a town where you put your dude on a space in a town and you improve your tableau, your tableau in this situation being an adventurer. And he or she can have a party that comes along on adventures like party members and you can get treasures to carry. Uh, when you go to the Mystic's Hut and you go to the stables and get these pack birds or pack tortoises that carry your treasure and that give you additional movement, uh, you can go into a little a mine at uh, one end of the town and get resources to buy the other stuff. Um, and then once you have prepared your explorer, it stops being a worker placement and you go out on a little map. And the map, it's not a board, it's a big old book that you open up double-sided to a map and you play on that map and that map has specific resources and routes and it has specific nodes that refer to paragraphs in a book where you look up something and you present the player with a dilemma you know you found someone whose cart the wheel is broken do you want to help them or do you want to steal stuff from the cart and the player decides and they make a roll and depending on how their roll went uh, they get a reward or a punishment Right. Uh, and so it's it's very uh, – the, the worker placement stuff is super easy in town, and there's even a little bit, a bit of elbow throwing where if somebody goes to the place you want, you have to do a, a die roll or you get kicked out of there and you go to jail. The idea is that you're dueling that person. Mm. Uh, so then once you're ready and you uh, once you've done the worker placement, it's all about uh, going out on this map and building encampments that make it easier for you and the other players to reach out farther onto the map. So mm. you're kind of laying a trail that everybody can use, uh, and you want to push farthest out your trail. Like, if you want to get to a specific point, you might not be able to do it alone. You want to let someone else get partway there and then leapfrog ahead of them when they don't expect it. Gotcha. Uh, so you're so you're – you're all moving around on this map. It's not cooperative. You're all following your own adventures, but you can potentially, um, you know, use each other's progress to help you get further. Exactly, and it's not, yeah, not cooperative at all. Definitely competitive, uh, and you you must use each other's progress. Like it's it's one of those things where if I build a camp, I know that I'm helping everyone else at the table get past this area because every camp. Uh, when, when you move, it costs a certain number of movement points, but if there's a camp there, it doesn't cost any movement points. Regardless of who owns the camp, you just skip over that point for free. So right. the camp gives everyone more range, uh, and as a route gets a few camps along it, you can get farther out into more esoteric areas. Huh. Uh, and there's a reward for getting to certain areas first. Uh, there are treasures out there. There are little battles that you fight, which are pretty simple, and they basically give you victory points. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of those games, too, that can end pretty quickly. Like, everyone's playing, and then suddenly, oh, this person, once you place all your tents, uh, you've got tents lined up on your tableau, and once you've placed all of them, the, the game is over. And there are a variety of ways to place them. In addition to being camps, they're markers when you achieve something, like when you fight somebody or when you build something. Uh, so suddenly someone who had four t 
tents last turn. Uh, they do a bunch of things on their one turn. Their last tent is gone, and oh, the game is suddenly over, which I like for pacing reasons. Like, I, I like that kind of thing where rather than us playing a nine-turn game, we play a game where after six turns, anyone can end it at any time, and you're never sure. That that tends to be a, a good hook for people's attention. Right. Um, Right. So it sounds like a, a combination between worker placement and an adventure game. Is that the sense of it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and the worker placement, uh, exactly. The worker placement is the prepping for the adventure because you do the worker placement to build up your tableau, to get your supplies ready, to then go out on the adventure. And then when you go out on the adventure, you get stuff that you bring back. Uh, and sort of manage with the worker placement, yeah. Uh, and all along, and this is a Ryan Lawcat trademark, I believe, at least on a couple of his games that I've played. All along, you're you're reading little snippets of text, which are these cute little dilemmas and opportunities and adventures, and they're the sort of things like the like Tales of Arabian Nights, where right. it's not just a decision for the player; it's an opportunity for everyone to kind of laugh and enjoy oh this you you just tried to rob this old lady and uh she turned into a, a frog and ran away and she took some of your money haha like they're cute little right. moments like that uh that have just enough text to give them uh, a narrative uh right. so uh and, it, and and my concern about not teaching it well i even like it was one of those things where halfway through because I love to, I have a few friends that do this when I teach a game. I have some friends where when it's not their turn, they'll be like, can I see the rule book? Uh, and they just want to flip through it. And, mm -hmm. and not necessarily to check my work, but just sort of to reinforce things. So it was one of those games where halfway through, uh, my friend Sharon was like, um, we're not doing this right. And she held up a, a thing that I had completely missed. Uh, and I was like, oops, and, and it was the sort of thing that had screwed a couple of people up, and I always feel bad about that, but everyone was super good-natured, and uh, so even though I thought I did a terrible job teaching it, the, the charm and the whimsy of the design took over, and it's just super accessible, and because it's a game where you're building up a character, I'm really convinced now that next time we play it, I can get people hooked by giving them their characters. And it comes with a little sheet where you write the things that your character has unlocked. You even buy skills. Like when you play a game, you have a few points to buy a skill. That right. means like you, you build camps more cheaply or you get a free companion. Um, and there are even some characters, when you go on a quest, it tells you, hey, on your character sheet, just make the notation, uh, you know, Q5 something like that and then it'll refer later to another quest that it'll create quest chains for specific characters that are recorded on that character sheet mm. Uh, mm. so it's got some legacy components to it that sounds that sounds cool does does the map change at all or are you always yes. interacting with that one no no that's the thing is because the map it's not a board it's a big old uh, double it's a binder book and yeah. when you flip over a page each page the, the back of the page you flip and the front of the new page makes a new double-sided map and it's a big old thing that sits above the worker placement town board uh, so you've got a big board where the worker placement stuff the town's always the same but that map up there you change every time you play cool and really the map is just different routes and a little bit of different artwork and names for the towns and i think some of them are hard-coded with certain quests in the little book where you look up paragraphs uh, right. but there's this sense that you're advancing across the land on different maps yeah right now would your friend who 
is a hardcore Agricola fiend and likes economy and 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 you know the tightness of a of a tough worker placement would he like this game because i i think one issue people have with ryan's designs is that they can in their whimsy they can feel a little light and maybe not as tight as they should be what do you think uh he actually did like this because he was one of the folks that played uh and I, i think he did like it because he he looked at it one of the things you do on the map, and one of the reasons that you want to push out to the edges of the map is there are these cute little icons for trade goods. There's like a tobacco, uh, and there's like a red pepper, and there's even like a, a, a butterscotch mint or something. There, there are four resources <laughs> on each map, and each of the resources has two nodes. So if you push a way out onto the map and you build a node on one of those two, say, tobacco little pictures it's a node that gives you tobacco and you don't get anything else cool you just get tobacco and at the end of the game it's worth a few points but if you get both of the tobaccos and they tend to be at opposite sides of the map then you get a ton of points so he did a really good job of planning out to grab those they're called trade routes to grab those trade routes which are just pairs of remote nodes that Mm. it's the sort of thing where you have to sacrifice getting gold you have to uh, forego something that helps your economy for something that helps your victory points. And I am terrible at that sort of thing because I right. constantly am like, I need a better economy. I'll get victory points later. Pff, and then the game's over and I haven't gotten victory points. And he's really good at timing that. So that was one of the things is he did the little light worker placement to get yourself ready in town. And then he made a beeline for a few of these trade routes. And I think he might have actually won. Hmm. Um, so, so that yeah, so he felt gratified by that decision he was able to make. That's exactly, cool. he had a plan and it paid off, and I think that's the sort of thing that my friend Kyle likes. Yeah, that's so. cool. I mean, near and far is I think it's considered to be his his strongest game so far, um, and I think it's been received, you know, really really well in part because of the campaign elements as well as it's almost like a culmination of a lot of yeah the design features he's been you know, working on for several years, you know, it's, it's kind of like above and below and, and pushing the story elements of that design, but combining it with some of his worker placement stuff, which he's been iterating over numerous designs. So it's kind of like, it's, um, you know, it's kind of his masterpiece at this point. Yeah. And based on what I've seen, I definitely can agree with that because I've got above and below and I, 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 respect what above and below is trying to do but i I don't know if i mentioned this to you too uh, before i think one of my friends broke above and below by pointing (laughs) out a very simple issue in uh i really do think there's a broken design element in above and below and i rarely say that about a game and that kind of soured me and it's it's just a facet of that being a light forgiving game Uh, right but right. uh, so that kind of soured me on the Ryan Lawcat games. But then I got near and far. He has a kind of a cool uh, Space Empire 4X game called Empires of the Void 2, which I also like. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think I've become a Ryan Lawcat fan now. That, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I have not sampled enough of his games, um, but Near and Far was was one of them that because of the reviews coming in, I was tempted by. And do you have you tried any of them? You like you know who he is, I think, just because he's well known. Uh, are oh, yeah. there any of his games you've played uh, at all? Like, yeah, I've played the Ancient World, and mm-hmm. I'm, and I really respect Ryan. I mean, he's he's. I mean, just in case people don't know, he's basically a one man show. I mean, not entirely nowadays because his company has grown a little bit, but he does all of the artwork, all of the that's what I design. wondered because because yeah. visually they're so consistent and evocative yeah. and just simple and lovely with the artwork. So it yeah. seems like it's definitely 
uh, either he's always worked with the same artist or that's his own stuff very personal to him. So that shows, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. The consistency in the art style is one of the best features. And he has, a, I think, a great imagination. And yeah. like you said, his 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 stuff is very whimsical, which separates it from so much of, you know, these traditional Euro games or fantasy games or whatever. You know, he has frog people and, you know, turtles and it's just cute. And it's, it's, it, it draws you in. It doesn't push you away, which I really like. Um, but for one guy to be doing all of the artwork and the game design, it's just so impressive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've played ancient world, which was one of his first ones. And I recently actually just got, the second edition i think it i supported the kickstarter and it showed up a couple weeks ago and all i've done at this point is set it up and i played it through solo um you know play sort of mimicking three players just mm -hmm. to get a feel for it to see if i wanted to introduce it to the game group and i've got mixed feelings about it ancient world is it's just gorgeous um i think really that's what what got me to buy it is just it's so beautiful and it's a relatively straightforward simple worker placement game where you you're putting your workers out to gather resources and the twist in ancient world is the the things you're collecting which are really buildings or structures within your 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 fantasy civilization um, each have uh, a color associated with them, and you're trying to gather sets of colors. Okay. So it's very much a set collection, worker placement combination game. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some engine building in it, and that as you as you gather these structures into your civilization, they can help you, you know, um, take more efficient actions and things like that. But it's pretty light. It's pretty. It's it's not intense. It's not super thinky. I think the the core mechanic in it that people will either, will either love or hate, and that's probably the most controversial feature of it, is that the the workers in it vary in value. Like they have numbers on them, basically from one to five. And at least in first edition, if you placed one of your workers on a spot that was, uh, you know, high value that blocked the spot from everybody else who had, who wanted to put, you know, a lower value worker right. on that spot. Right? right. So it was, and it could be vicious because it's, it's a, it's a board that only has one spot for building structures, for example. So it could really lock people out of a critical mechanism in the game. And some people just did not jive with that. So what he did in second edition is I really think he castrated the game. He, he really, he made it much more mellow and, and you, you can now play, place on a spot with a higher work you know an opponent's higher worker but you just have to pay one gold to the bank you know <laughs> and in my mind it's he went too far like now i just there's there's not much tension in the right. game Right. You can he has variants in the rule book and he basically says like hey look if you want a first edition feel you can totally play it this way and this way um like I said, I, I need to actually get it to the game group and, and see what they think about it. But my, my gut feeling actually is that it's not quite a crunchy enough, tight enough worker placement game to be um, to bear repeated plays. I right. just I don't quite think it has that hook where you finish it and you immediately are like, oh, I know how I can play better next time. Like, I want to try that again. But, you know, I'm I'm going to wait and see. And you say it's one of his earlier games. It is. It is. And it kind of, uh, I mean, given, I, while I haven't played a lot of his, you know, his other stuff and certainly none of his recent stuff, I, I, I have followed it. And it's clear that his designs have gotten more sophisticated yeah. and yeah. 
um, I think he's honed his skills as a designer, like like we all do. And I think the ancient world is is a gorgeous piece of artwork. Um, but as a game design, I'm, I don't think it's his strongest stuff. That that sounds like uh, my experience with uh, Above and Below. Uh, is I, I I think he's come a long way since Above and Below, and it sounds like the same situation with Ancient World. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, why play his earlier stuff when you can play his later, better stuff? Yeah. Do Do you think Empires of the Void Two is a is a solid space? You know, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a four Xy type game, but do you recommend that one? Do you uh, enjoy it? It has the same problem that a lot of games like that have in that. Uh, games like uh, it's like Merchants and Marauders or Firefly vibe where everybody's flying around a spaceship and doing stuff and the problem is I don't think it does enough to encourage player interaction it's like we're each on our own separate adventure and right. I really like the way he spins out the adventure and I like the modular board where it changes from game to game a certain you know there's specific planets that may or may not be in play in any given game and each planet has specific cards that are unique to what that planet does that get shuffled into a deck um so i i i'm concerned that it's just too much of each player doing his own pick up and drop off missions uh than but but the the theming is there and i like the you know i like his little science fiction stuff and i like the different planets uh and you have to hire different armies and and their space technologies you research uh so i just wish there was more direct interaction and i'm just not sure how you do that in a game where everybody's playing his or her own star trek you know i've got right. my ship going on its seven year voyage you've right. got yours going so i wait for you guys to do your turns and then it comes around and i do my turn and it doesn't have much to do with what you guys are doing totally uh, so i there... think there's yeah i think i think there's so much space creative space available in in sci-fi galactic conquesty exploration games that people aren't taking advantage of i just yeah it's kind of how i feel about 4x space games in the digital realm which is that people are still following this ancient you know 4x you know moo model um that is kind of outdated and clunky and i just wish that people would think of you know newer more clever ways of doing space exploration that involve for example really intricate economies interacting with each other um you know it doesn't necessarily need to be a game where players must interact via warfare because right. that's going to be i mean we have those games right and that's a that's a whole separate thing but it would be cool to see a, a game of cultural conflict between alien empires or economic conflict, and there's, I, I just think there's so much room there that people haven't figured out how to how to dig into yet. Do you know this? The game Sidereal Confluence. It's the worst name. It's the worst name, though. Um, I, I would love to try it at a con. I think that's the only place I'll ever get a chance to to try it. But yeah, I know of it, but I've never played it. Because that's that's one that I think exactly does that. But uh, well, it's got issues that I don't have. But I I've the, had the hardest time getting people to play that, and I really love what it's trying to do because it's exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. It's science fiction stuff, and it's interaction, constant interaction that's not based on warfare uh but yeah, yeah so right well, yeah. yeah uh so all right so uh i've been playing near and far you have been playing something that i've been told about before and i just can't get excited I, i've even had a friend show me a deck so what can you do hassan to get me excited or even <laughs> curious about key forge Oh geez, that's a that's a tough mission right there, Tom. So, well, let me ask you this first. So, what what would you say is your history with 
uh, you know, trading card games and things like Magic and Netrunner. Yeah. Like, have have you gotten into one in the past? And is there one that's ever, you know, caught your heart in any significant way? So I'm one of those guys who's got, like, really weird, specific games that I I swear up and down are just these are the the great oldies and nobody respects them or loves them anymore and the industry's gone to hell and I'm on my front porch yelling at all these Keyforge players to get off my lawn. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I I was into Magic, uh, but the ones that I really loved were a game. Forget who makes this a game called, uh, unfortunately, called Jihad, and later uh, mm-hmm. retitled mm-hmm. Vampire: The Eternal Struggle. Uh, mm-hmm. A little bit on the nose. Uh, I loved that one, which required multiple people sitting in a ring around a table rather than two people head to head going up against each other. Uh, right. And then the one though that was two people head to head that I really really liked, and I still swear by this. And every now and then I meet somebody else who knows this game, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I've got decks in my closet somewhere. We should play sometime." Uh, there was a company called Decipher that made a Star Wars themed CCG mm-hmm. uh, that's super old, and it became defunct after a while. Uh, but I really liked that design. Um, and of course, Netrunner. So those are those are the the three big ones: is Jihad, the Decipher, Star Wars, and Netrunner that that I like. Uh, Magic. I I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast. I think Magic's terrible. <laughs> I just really, I just think it's like an old. It, it, I'm, totally. I'm gonna put it up there with Monopoly, and, and that people <laughs> just play it because it's old, not because it's good. Uh, well, I'll I'll just I mean I'll say this like I I went to the I went to college in the early '90s, and so I was I think a sophomore uh, when Magic: The Gathering was first released, and you know so I was you know I was nerdy, I was in college, I had a previous history of playing fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons and Avalon Hills Titan and so I was the target audience for Magic the Gathering. Like it just it really caught my imagination at the time and mm-hmm. um my roommate and a few friends of mine at the time started buying it and started playing it and it it it's the one that's hooked me the most for sure. And while while I absolutely recognize it's got flaws um, I still have a, a really deep fondness for magic. I've, um, you know, I started building a collection that now, oh my God, it's probably up in the thousands and I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. I oh, stopped. you still have it. You're not one yeah. of those people who's moved on and sold his collection. Okay. Now I stopped collecting it when they did like a, a major graphic design overhaul of the cards. I think in like 2003, eighth edition or something like that. And that was kind of, I used that as a good excuse to just stop buying because what had been happening for years at that point, and I suspect there are people in the audience that can identify with this, is I had been collecting um, primarily for art and theme and for deck building. I really liked seeing what new mechanics each set would introduce, but I was hardly playing at all anymore. You know, I was was buying cards and putting them in my binders and making decks and playing them <laughs> against myself and and periodically you know coercing a girlfriend to play with me and she'd roll her eyes and do it and then we'd play it and the deck the deck you know cards would go back in the binder and so I realized I just needed to stop at some point but um but yeah I'm I'm I'm, I'm super fond of magic still and that was kind of the backdrop as I was going into Keyforge is mm-hmm. I, I have not gotten into a deck builder or a dueling game since then, even though I know a bunch of, of good ones have been published in the interim. And 
um, a couple things with with KeyForge, I think, have brought me back into the fold. And I, well, the I first think... I, you don't you can't build your decks in KeyForge. I mean, KeyForge gets rid of what it sounds like you loved in Magic. Right, right. No, and and, and I would argue actually that the the two things that I love about Magic are the artwork. I've always been really fond of the artwork in that game um, and the the deck building, and those are two things which Keyforge just totally sucks on. Like it's just like its theme is absolutely ludicrous. It's what I would call a derivative mishmash of nonsense. You know, it's like you play like an Archon, which is like a demigod who's clashing with other Archons on an artificial planet called the Crucible. It just doesn't fucking make any sense at all. Right? <laughs> is it fantasy? Fantasy or science fiction? Well, or that's what I mean. It's it's everything. Like okay. if, you, if you've ever picked up a deck, there's like there's like Martians in your deck, but there's also golems, <laughs> and there's also you know like it's I think it's basically Richard Garfield and Fantasy Flight saying um, we want to be able to use anything, you know, any art asset that we can imagine, and right. so we're just we're gonna make it so broad um, and meaningless as to I cannot get a hold of it like it's just a theme that does not grab me at all uh, now there's got to be an actual like it's called key forge because there's got to be you're you're building keys right like isn't there something there like what's that <laughs> that that narrative conceit do you right, really like, want do you really want to know okay so yeah I'm, yeah i mean I'm, why why would they call it this if they're just going to have a mishmash of trappings <laughs> all of these mishmashes are coming together to i guess build keys that unlock what that is my question vaults of ultimate power so you have to unlock the vaults of ultimate power to basically i think you can think of it as like ascending from demigodness to like total godness right so that's what you got to do and a key it takes a key to open a vault to do this three keys right three three keys so but yeah so i to, really i think it's such a missed opportunity i would have much preferred if the theme had been like you're playing as you know gods and goddesses of across real mythological traditions um do that or omnipotent alien races or, or something i just don't know why they went with this this mishmash thing but it is what it is but um, and what so what's wrong with the artwork because it sounds think, like they could have a bunch of different styles, and maybe some of them suck, but aren't some of them cool? Uh, I mean, this is subjective, and some right, people right. might be really sold on the Keyforge artwork. Keyforge artwork. I look at it and I just laugh at it. It just looks stupid to me. <laughs> um, I mean, it's really colorful and it's vibrant, and it's, it's you know, it's stylistically it's it's well done. It's but to me, it feels like some of that fantasy flight artwork where you just look at it and you just like kind of smirk and then you ignore it for the rest of the game. I don't know. Uh, Is it lighthearted or earnest? <laughs> it's a mix. It's an odd mix. Like, <laughs> okay. like there's like Martians in there that look like silly little Martians from Mars Attacks with ray guns. And so you're like, oh, okay, this is silly. But then there's like, you know, demons that are, you know, straight out of Magic the Gathering and the D&D Monster Manual. And they're really serious. And you're like, okay, I don't totally understand how I'm supposed to feel about this. But So it, the game's got to be good because that, otherwise that must kill. Like I, I just if, – if that's the stuff that's put under my nose – Right. At a certain point, that just alienates me, and I'm just this is ridiculous. I don't, in a way, even care if the game is good. Like if, right. if there's if there's no consistent aesthetic that's sort of pulling me through the gameplay or that's entertaining me or that's right. evoking some idea. So so then you're, what you're saying is you play it because the gameplay is great. I think the gameplay is really good. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. Because okay, so, go ahead. Yeah. So the, I mean the the. The big hook, obviously, is that this is not a deck building game. Like Fantasy Flight has this 
has developed with Garfield, I presume, this algorithm that procedurally generates every deck. So every deck you buy of Keyforge is unique. It's got a unique set of cards. It's got a unique name. Um, it's got a unique image. And I think that it sounds like a gimmick, um, mm -hmm. and it sounds like it would really anger people who enjoy deck building. But I actually do think it's genius. And I, I think the biggest reason why it works is because it makes it a much more um, casual experience. Like you can you can give your friend a deck, you can get a deck, and you can just start playing. Like the rules are pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a much easier entry into, um, you know, dueling 1v1 um, deck games than anything like Magic the Gathering or Netrunner or any of these other games we mentioned previously, right? I mean, these these are games that traditionally have been really tough on newbies. You know, you right. you, know, you, you you try to bust into it and, you know, you play against someone who's more experienced than you and they're just going to decimate you, in, in part because their deck will just be better than yours. They'll have bought cards that are better than yours. Or, and, or, you're, or they're teaching you the game and they're giving you decks that <laughs> they built and they know how they work. And you're just trying to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, I really like the idea that you you truly are, in a sense, starting from the same starting point. Like, here's your deck, here's mine. And the, the idea is that you just have to learn how this deck works. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's not totally random. I mean, the, the algorithm they're using is not completely idiotic. Um, it, it can make decks that are better than others, for sure. And I think they're aware of that. But, um, you know, what kind of sold me on this is I, I was listening to Garfield sort of talk about one of his inspirations for designing it. And he was saying that he was had gotten increasingly frustrated with how deck builders had, had gone all the way from Magic the Gathering to, you know, something like, um, uh, what's the one put out by uh, the, the digital deck builder? Hearthstone. Hearthstone. Like Hearthstone, right? right. Where, where, you know, the modern deck builders, in a sense, um, really, the internet has changed how people play them so much so so that you you net deck. You basically look for dominant decks online and then and then you buy your way to fill out that deck. Yeah. And he hated that idea. He he what he valued was in those early years of magic was people opening packs and being really excited about what they got and then using their creativity to put something new together. And he wanted to recapture that that moment in magic's history and what he basically said is okay i'm not gonna let you tweak your deck like here it is and you have to kind of figure out how to make it work and it's kind of a fun experience i mean it's not kind of i think it's just truly engaging fun experience to to get a deck and just try to just just get a friend and sit down together and see how it works um, so a couple of questions uh is is Keyforge now available? I know that there were some supply issues; it was hard to find. Can I now just go on Amazon and order four Keyforge decks? Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Um, the, the starter sets, especially, were a little rare, but you don't need those. And they're gearing up to release their their first big expansion, um, which I think is going to come out within the next month. So, if if they're hard to find now, they're not going to be hard to find in a few weeks, is my guess. Yeah. So, so is the basic pattern, you've got 20 hit points, I've got 20 hit points, I play cards that block your cards trying to attack my hit points, and then my cards attack your hit points? No, and that's another, I think, great innovation in the design. So um, 
in, in Keyforger deck is <clears throat> excuse me is composed of these these three three houses out of I think seven possible. Um, in each house you have ten twelve cards from each of these houses in your deck, so you have a thirty six card deck. And on your turn you make a simple decision, which is to activate one of your houses. And that means that you can play as many of the cards from that house from your hand as you want, um, or you can activate any of those um, cards that are already out in front of you. Mm -hmm. this, this solves the problem, by the way, of the mana resource issue, which plagues magic. And that's, that's most people's fundamental problem with magic, right? Is that you, you draw your hand and it's either full of mana or you have no mana and you're screwed. Right, mm -hmm. and it just feels really cruel, and and it can ruin your play experience. And modern, you know, collectible games have solved this. Like Hearthstone solved that problem really elegantly. Um, but Keyforge basically says, look, don't worry about mana. You're always going to be able to play cards. It's really just a cool decision that you have to make about which house you're going to activate on your turn. Mm -hmm. um, and it is interesting because you might have one of your houses out represented in front of you. Like you might have the Mars house really well represented where you have four or five cars out in front of you that you would love to activate. But in your hand, you have your other houses. You don't have any Mars cars. So if you activate Mars this this turn, you're going to get to use the cards in front of you, but you're not going to actually get to play any more from your hand. So your board position isn't necessarily going to improve. And I think that's a really interesting back and forth decision you have to make each turn mm -hmm. um, so you weren't kidding they're literally martians yes that's oh, one yeah. of the houses okay yeah. okay and it and it doesn't make any sense i mean the other houses are brobnar logo sanctum i mean it is just nonsense <laughs> it's just total nonsense um but yeah the 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 idea behind these what you're doing is you are playing creatures out in front of you you're playing artifacts for anyone who's played magic by the way you'll you'll jump into keyforge and so much of it will feel familiar to you so it's very easy to learn mm -hmm. But instead of um, directly attacking your opponent, what you're what you're trying to do is collect this resource called ether. And once you have collected, I believe it's like seven ether tokens, you can trade that in for a key. So you're really trying to collect ether to, to forge these keys. That's where the key forge comes from. Um, so my dudes aren't fighting your dudes and killing them? Well, they can, and the reason why is because I can use my dude at any moment not just to attack your guys, but also just to harvest ether. So if I have 10 creatures out and you have none, well, I'm just going to use every one of those to harvest ether, and now I'm just going to... I'm just going to cruise to victory, right? So from your perspective, that that loss of board position is very, it's still very meaningful. So you do want to try to attack your opponent's creatures. You want to try to maintain control over the board as best you can, but you're not trying to reduce your opponent to, to zero life. Um, I think one problem this solves is that Maybe the, the second most frustrating element about magic I always found next to the mana problem was the stalemate problem, is that you would right. be playing cards out, playing cards, you get this all these creatures out, and then your opponent would have all these creatures out, but neither of you wanted to attack because you just didn't see the advantage in it yet, right? Um, and so you just end up with all these creatures out, all these creatures out until somebody finally clicks that combo or that <laughs> thing that gives them the advantage, right? And I always found that really frustrating. That's not a fun way to play magic. You, you imagine it being like, oh, my giant, you know, ogre attacks your red dragon and da 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 da. But it was, it was more boring than that. Um, 
And Keyforge totally avoids that problem. Um, it, 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 because your creatures can always be harvesting ether, if you have a ton of them out there, you're going to do that, and the game progresses at a very rapid you know, pace. It just keeps, keeps going until somebody wins. There's also a lot more... I think, uh, board wipe type cards, you know, like in magic, it was, it was exciting when somebody played a card that wiped out all the creatures on the board in Keyforge, that happens, um, more, more commonly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, in, in magic, there are a, a series of verbs like, like block and fly, uh, that inform the gameplay and how the cards interact with each other. Uh, what kinds of things? So, so creatures here can harvest, and I presume they can punch each other. But beyond that, are there other verbs and interactions that that make Keyforge interesting? There are, yeah. There's there's things like, for example, capturing. You can capture ether from your opponent, and then it sits on that card. Um, so certain certain creatures have that ability to capture, and it just sits on their card because it's your opponent's ether. It's tempting them, and as soon as that creature is killed, um, the opponent gets their ether back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's steel effects, there's skirmish, there's poison. Yeah, there's a lot of those verbs like what you're talking about, and I suspect with each expansion, what they're going to do is add at least one or two more verbs out, right, with each one. Are they? Uh, do the different houses feel different? Like, do you get a sense that Martians poison and Archon steal, or uh, is it pretty much each house gets to do everything? No, I think I think they've been successful defining each of the, the factions, and in a way, to the point where eventually, I mean, I think most people who pick up the game will will want to explore each of them and then will want to find a deck that has the three factions they like the best. Right. Ah, right. So on the one hand, you look at this and you're like, oh, this isn't a money sink. And on the other hand, it definitely is because while you only need one deck to play the game and you should just play with that deck, you're going to want to search for a deck that has the three factions that you like. Like, um, Dis is the faction that appeals to people who probably played Black and Magic. It's, mm-hmm. It causes a lot of discard effects. It's it's kind of vicious, right? And so if you like that, Dis is your is your faction. And Brobnar and Untamed are the factions that have big monsters. So if you like to play Green and Magic, then that's those are your factions that you're gonna like. Um, and, and when you buy a deck, you don't know an event. Like, can I look for a deck that has Dis, Brobnar, and Untamed? Um, oh, if you go on eBay and places like that, but oh. you know, if, if you if, but if you buy a random deck from the game store or whatever, no, it's you're just gonna open it and see what you get. Yeah. And um, couldn't I buy just a couple different decks and take the discards from one deck and put them in with the Bravnar cards from another <laughs> deck? Like, is is that like what's to stop people no, from just doing that? You can't because on every on every card in the game on the the back of every card is unique to that deck. <laughs> Um, and, Busted, and then you, right. yeah, and then if you're like, well, I'll put it in a sleeve. Even on the front of the card, it 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 lists the name of the deck, so you you can't get away with that. It's not yeah. like they're one step ahead of me there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The last thing, the feature I'll say that I really like about this game is that there are no interrupts in the game, and that was something ah. that. You know, in Magic, you know, ostensibly Magic is a simple game, but if anyone has ever actually looked at the the rule book, you know, for Magic, it's just absurd how complex it's gotten. And a large part of that has to do with timing issues, you know, like timing of the stack and how things resolve and blah, blah, blah. And that's because you could interrupt each other, right? 
Um, and that is where some of the cleverness of the game resides, but it's also incredibly difficult to to learn that as a new player. Um, in Keyforge, it's each player takes their turn one at a time. There's no interrupts, at least at this stage in the game. And I, I really like how that flows. It just, it feels, like I said, like an entry level uh, dueling game that is is appealing to people who've never tried something like this before. Now, as someone who still has his magic collection, how big is your Keyforge collection? <laughs> At this point, I, I, we, we, my, my friends and I have bought a few decks each. I think I have, I have the starter set, and I think I bought four decks on top of that. So, and is the starter set just two decks? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is the starter are starter set decks somehow engineered to be separate from the the decks you would buy in addition? Like, is there something unique to starter set decks? for beginners yeah what they've done with the starter set is there's actually four decks in that box two of them are of the randomized type so you don't know what you're going to get and then two are pre-designed starter decks that they recommend you you learn the game with but uh, you know we didn't we didn't need them we skip i have i've never played with those the game is really simple it's not hard to learn and Especially if you have any kind of history playing like Hearthstone or anything like that, you're going to be able to jump into this so fast. And I think the appeal is saying, hey, I've got a deck that no one else in the world has. I mean, that is really a big part right, of this appeal. Right. Uh, so a deck is 36 cards. What are what are they charging for a deck? Ten bucks. Oh, okay. That sounds fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's reasonable. Now, there is a secondary market going on, which is, of course, I'm sure it's making Garfield. I don't know if he likes that or not. Probably he probably hates it. But there's there is a secondary market going on where people are selling decks that presumably are better than others. Right. right? You know, because yeah. we said that the procedural generation isn't perfect. Like, I'll just give you an example, because this is something that will make a deck builder just go fucking nuts, which is. Mm -hmm. So in, in one of my decks, I have a couple cards that, that trigger off of artifacts. So it'll say, yeah, you know, you can, you know, for every artifact you have, you can get three ether, sacrifice the artifact to get three ether. And so you're like, oh, cool. And if you were a deck builder, you would stack this deck with that card and a whole bunch of artifacts, right? Mm -hmm. But the stupid algorithm gave me a deck with <laughs> two artifacts in it out of 36 cards, right? And... <laughs> And so that deck is kind of it's janky. It doesn't it doesn't work very well. And if you're someone who loves the idea of tweaking your deck and picking out individual cards to make it run just perfectly smoothly, Keyforge might justifiably annoy you. Right. Uh, but the other side of that, like I said, is that then a lot of people will find that jankiness kind of appealing and they'll be like, well, you know what, I'm just going to keep playing this until I figure out how to make it work. Right. But it sounds like the, the algorithm algorithm broke it, and it doesn't. Like, will you ever play this deck? Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a wasted ten bucks, right? You're never going to play a deck that keys off artifacts but only has two artifacts in it. That is my least favorite deck. I okay. will I will never bring that deck back out again. I, I tried it twice. It did not work, and I will not play with it again. That's right. Uh, one of the things that when my friend first came out, my friend brought it over a couple of decks. He was super enthusiastic about it. Uh, uh, is the decks have unique names, right? Like they have some silly name generator that gives each deck a, a unique name, right? Yep. What What is your lame deck that keys off artifacts and only has two artifacts? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it is Slate Masher, the Laborer of the Archives. I think that's what it is. That's <laughs> yeah, fucking stupid. Right? <laughs> 
slate masher, the laborer of the. First of all, why does someone have a why do why does an archive have a laborer in it? And how did he get the name slate masher? What what's the deck that you really like? What's the name of a deck? The, the, uh, your, your current favorite yeah let's see i've actually got my decks beside me just in case um i think it's called b dunno the saloon composer so yeah <laughs> this is definitely random name generator stuff well i was I, and people who know about keyboard they know that there are some infamous names that have been printed uh, that people have been spreading on the internet that are you know either slightly offensive or really funny um right, but right. the random name generator is is a silly feature of the game which you know i, I don't I, I don't mind it but it, it most of the names are just stupid what's your good one again bebop the saloon composer what was that one <laughs> yeah basically uh be done the saloon composer be done the saloon composer okay that one i kind of like i i could i could see that working uh, yeah. all right uh all right so keyforge uh how heavy is a game of keyforge like, like is it is it sort of thing where you sit down and you play through it four times or do you sit down and you play a game and you guys are ready to move on to something else I would say that the a, a good keyforge session is two games back to back. Each each game takes about forty five minutes. I, I, if you got really fast at it, you could maybe cut it to half an hour. But yeah, like forty five minutes each, an hour and a half total. That would be a fun session. And there's no four player variant or anything. Is it always just two player? Only two player? At this point, I believe it is only two player. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, don't think I'm not tempted, Hassan. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's only it's only for people who might be looking for you know a, a dueling game, an entry level dueling game, and it is it is it is super casual, and that's why I recommend it to people. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, okay, speaking of super casual, so Hassan, I might need your help here. Uh, you have that that phase at the end of the night where people are. You've played a long game or a brain burner or maybe a couple of middleweight games. And people are starting to look at the clock and thinking, eh, i got to work tomorrow. I should probably go, but I just want to play one more thing real quick. Uh, the classic palate cleanser. Um, our go-to for the longest time uh, has been Lovecraft Letter, which is a variation of Seiji Kanai's Love Letter, uh, but with funky insanity cards thrown in to, to kind of mix it up. Uh, and the Love Letter... Uh, structure is that you've got the deck of cards that you're all playing from everybody's dealt one card and then on your turn you draw a card so you've got two cards now and you only have to decide which of the two to play and you play it and it's a last man standing kind of game so as you're playing cards you're knocking other people out or you're protecting yourself uh, and then eventually there's one man left standing and that person gets a token uh, and the first person to get three tokens wins the game pretty much right. Right. Um, and I am so over Lovecraft Letter, uh, but everybody in my group pretty much still loves it. And here's the issue, is that because that decision is so straightforward, draw one card, you're looking at two cards, you play one of the two, at a certain point, there's no decision there. Like, the choice is almost always obvious. Uh, and furthermore, there are only eight different cards. The distribution is different. There's five of the number one card. There's only one in the number eight card. Uh, so with so few pieces, eight pieces, um, and only one decision to make between two cards every turn, my feeling is, and I'm reluctant to say this about any game, but I'm happy to say it about Lovecraft Letter, is I've kind of solved it. 
<laughs> and that I'm just along for the ride. I know there, you know, I'm just mechanically moving the cards. Like I could write, and I I don't know, I don't know algorithms, but I'm pretty sure I could write one for Lovecraft letter. Like make a little flow chart, and and so I'm really over it because at this point I'm just on autopilot, and that's fine. But for palate cleansers, I don't think you need to do that uh like i think there can be palate cleansers that can be good and that can still provide interesting decisions and lots of interaction they don't have to be brain burners they don't have to take a long time they can be well paced um so my feeling about lovecraft letter and this is how i've expressed it to my friends i'm, I'm happy to play it when they want to play it that's fine but uh, i'm just there to hang out with them at that point uh my feeling about lovecraft letter it's good for 50 playthroughs <laughs> and once you hit 50 playthroughs, it's solved, you're done with it. I'm well over 100 at this point. The oh, man. The yeah, problem you... being that different people show up at different nights, and they've only got their 20 or 30 playthroughs under their belt, right. whereas I'm sitting here with 100. So what I've been casting about for recently is a replacement for Lovecraft Letter. That palate cleanser, it has to be short, it has to be well-paced, uh, and it has to have a lot of player interaction, but it can't be something – it shouldn't be something that is quickly solved. Like it, I, I want something that's not going to peter out after 50 playthroughs because when I get to 50 playthroughs, most of the other folks in the group who uh, they arrive in sort of staggered sets are only going to be at 10 playthroughs. So, Hassan, help me. How can I replace Love Letter? And what what is what is the game for you guys group uh, in that situation? Mm, that's a tough. Oh, well, first I'll say is that you've gotten a ton of value out of that game. That is fantastic. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And by the way, Lovecraft Letter, it's a big old elaborate like they're oversized cards and there's really nice poker chips for the scoring tokens and the artwork is really lovely. Uh, and and Seiji Kanai's idea of having this deck of eight different types of cards and you draw one, play one. He's he's done a lot with that beyond Lovecraft Letter. There's a series called Lost Legacy, uh, and each of them is a different set of eight cards that interact in different ways, but it's always the same as you draw one, play one. And there are, at this point, I think ten different Lost Legacy sets, right. and they're all games. I haven't solved those yet. I, I wish people would be as into those because they're all completely different mechanics and frameworks. Uh, so those still I'm, I'm on board with, but I haven't solved them. But everybody's so attached to Lovecraft Letter, so we haven't done those yet. Um, right, right, right. But yeah, you're right. I've, I've definitely gotten a lot of value out of Lovecraft Letter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a tough category for, for, for us, at least for my game group, because we usually don't pal palate cleanse at the end of the night. We'll we'll – We'll play the heavy one to the very end, and then people will will break out. But um, can I, can, um, I, can I trade groups with you? <laughs> <totally>. <laughs> yeah, no. But I I see the value of these, and I do have a few in my collection that I like. Like um, I, the the most recent addition I would say to to this category for me is High Society, which is a Reiner Knizia game. And that's it's, a that's a how Reiner Knizia made a palette cleanser. Yeah, if you think of like modern art, right? Which, mm -hmm. is, which is which is meteor and a big auction game, and I I don't think of it as a palate cleanser. I think it's pretty intense actually. Um, High society is a palate cleanser version of modern art. It it plays really fast. It's 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 not as brain burny, but it's still an auction game. It's still funny. Um, I think it works really well, and I think it plays up to six. I can't remember. No, it's it's it plays up to five. 
so yeah. does it does it have because i think one of the things too that appeals to folks about love letter is there's a lot of the uh i think it's called take that where you, you do some dramatic power that completely messes somebody else up and uh is there some of that in high society well only insofar as auction games will often have that built in okay. uh, it, it can feel it can feel mean at times where you can kind of in a sense force somebody to spend a lot more money than than they should it's also thematically a funny game because you're all you know you're all you're all basically um like nouveau riche and trying to impress high society with your expenditures so oh i'm gonna go on a vacation i'm gonna buy this expensive piece of art and all this stuff but there are also cards in the game that are things like faux pas and they're like negative <laughs> negative points and so you can kind of sometimes stick somebody with a faux pas which is really hilarious um, does it feel like a rainer canitia game it does. It does. Okay. It, it, when you play it, you're like, oh right, yep. This is this is tight. This is a tight auction game. This is definitely Nietzsche, and and um, and we quite like it. Um, otherwise, you know, if it's often if it's if it's just the the two of us at the end of a night, which happens sometimes, I am a huge fan of Seven Wonders Duel. Yes. And, and while people might not view that as a palate cleanser, I just can't get enough of that game. I just love it. So. Do you have the religion add-on? I don't have any of the add-ons. I just have the base game. I think it's only the religion. If, if there's another add-on, I'm going to have to run out and get it. But the religion add-on adds uh, – they're, they're kind of like wacky spell powers, but it's still within the framework of uh, of the, the whole structure of the game where you're always taking one card. It's, it's, it's basically a way to spend gold because uh, yeah. gold is super important, but now there are these spells, and over the course of playing the different eras – you determine what spells from what gods are going to be in play, and then they all unleash in the later game. Uh, so it's kind of this building up of wacky powers that are sitting off in the wings, and then as you're getting into the middle and end game, these wacky powers are then brought into play. Uh, cool. So I like the religion, but I like Seven Wonders Duel a lot. And I kind of feel like I, I don't think it has that much in common with Seven Wonders. No, it doesn't. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, it's got obviously the general thematic overlay right, right, to right. it. Right. But in terms of how it feels, no, I think it feels very different. Yeah. Um, I'm, I much prefer it. So, uh, I also like, like, I love the simplicity of on your turn, you just pick a card. You know, we look at, here's a few cards for you to pick. Your turn is comprised entirely of deciding which one of those you want. Like, yeah. I love how simple that is. Absolutely. Uh, yep. And just how important that is, too, in the decisions that, well, it's going to let him get that card. And I like how it channels off into one player is going for science and another is going for economy. Uh, and I love, too, those little uh, icons that give you free cards later on. Like, I like how thematic that is. Like, okay, I get the library, so I'm going to get the free <laughs> temple later. Like, I, I like that stuff a lot. Yeah, yeah no, the, the the core mechanic of the cards kind of being laid out in a in a pyramid, for example, with them laying on top of each other, and then yeah. as you take them, it reveals more cards underneath, is just so clever. I just, it's one of those mechanisms where I'm, I'm super jealous when I play it, because I'm like, oh, this is just, this is brilliant. And it allows for a lot of clever plays, and because you're only focusing on one opponent, you really can track what they need and what they're looking for, and so you can take that into account when you make your decision. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the closest we've come, and actually, would you... I think that could. I think that would qualify as a palate cleanser because it's over. It's one of those games. It's over before you know it. 
Like you get through the third, the first pyramid, then you build the second pyramid. Halfway through the second pyramid, you're, you're trying to do something, and then the third pyramid comes out, and you're kind of committed to what you're doing. And now it's a matter of how much can you do that, and how much can you stop the other guy, and then suddenly it's over. Like I think right. it's a pretty short game, almost a palate cleanser. Yeah. 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 Well, the closest we've come, or that I've come, to replacing uh, Lovecraft Letter, at least the most successful, uh, has one of the stupidest names, and it is a ridiculous artwork. I was a little embarrassed to roll it out, because uh, it's it's aggressively ridiculous artwork. Uh, is a game, and I think Mike might have pointed me towards this. He posts pictures of new games that are out, and I, I can't help but look out what look up what they are. So he posted a picture of something called Village Pillage. I was like, oh, God, it looks like something for, that you're, you have to play with eight-year-old kids or something. <laughs> I'm looking at the, the artwork right now. I would call it charming and colorful, Tom. I, uh, I, that's, I, very, I... that's very kind of you, Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I, but I, then I did read about it, and I looked at the rules uh, and decided, okay, let's give this a shot. Let's see if I can roll this out instead of Lovecraft Letter. Uh, and, and it's gone over very well, and I really do like it, and I like how it has some of the things that the group really likes about Lovecraft Letter, namely uh, quick turn, like it's paced very well because always, it's one of those games, and I love this in a game, where it's always everyone's turn. You're never waiting on someone else. We all do something at the same time and then quickly resolve what we've done, and then you go, you take your cards back and you do it again. Uh, right, so it's, so it's so, simultaneous action it, selection. Right? Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and the action selection is, and also like how simple it begins, because it's so easy to teach someone Lovecraft Letter, because you're like, okay, these are the eight cards in the game. Let me just real quickly show you what they are. Now, here's a little sheet, and it lists all the eight cards I just told you about. You're going to only have two of them at a time. You just pick which of those two you want to do. Like, that's super easy to, to bring a new player into, uh, or someone who's had their brain frazzled from a, a heavy game and doesn't want to play another one. Uh, so Village Pillage is like that in that you give someone four cards, and these are the only types of cards that are in the game. There's going to be a farmer, there's going to be a fighter dude, there's going to be a wall that protects against fighters, and there's going to be a merchant that gets you, like, money and new stuff. And you got those four cards. And on your turn, what you do is you look at those four cards, and we've all got the same four ones. I put one on my right and one on my left. And every player does that. So the cards on my right and left are then opposed against the players on my other on either side, whatever cards they've played. So we've all set between us two matching cards. And you simultaneously flip them up, and there's a very straightforward interaction where, for instance, the warrior will steal money turnips in this case, because we're all farmers, will steal money from the player that he's up against unless that player put his wall in front of me, in which case I lose a little bit of money and he gets a bonus of money. But if someone put their farmer down, they're going to make a bunch of money, but if I put my warrior down, it's going to steal from them more than they made. Uh, and as you're making money, you need to buy these doodads to win the game, and whoever buys three doodads first wins the game. In order to buy those, you have to put your merchant down, which means you're vulnerable to someone's soldier. Uh, mm. So it's a very simple interplay, and there's a lot of guessing, like, okay, he attacked me last turn. Does he think that I think he's going to attack me again and that I'll play my wall and therefore he won't play his fighter so I can get away with putting my farmer over there? Like there's some of that. And what keeps it from being too simplistic uh, is that 
as you play, there are also four cards in the middle that are completely separate powers. They all fall under the rubric of those four basic ideas. One is an aggressive card, one is a defensive card, one is a farmer that gets you a bunch of turnips, and one is a merchant that you have to play to buy those game-winning doodads. But the merchant also lets you buy one of these special cards in the middle. For instance, the farmer just says, hey, uh, take, take four turnips. Uh, but then there might be a tavern keeper whose power, he's like a farmer, but his power is, hey, take four turnips, but also take one from each player on either side of the board. Uh, so now I've got a special farmer I can use instead of my normal farmer, but everybody saw me take it from the middle of the board because it was there for all of us to buy. So now everybody knows that Tom has the special farmer. Or there's a miner who can go underneath a wall. So he's an aggressive card, but when he's placed against a wall, he gets a special bonus. So everybody then saw that, oh, I have the miner, so they have to be careful about putting a wall up against me. Um, and it's just it, – it's over very quickly because what will happen is someone who's getting a lot of money gets lucky enough where nobody steals that money from them for a couple of turns, and then they buy the doodads they need to win. Uh, and it's just a lot of dramatic back and forth and just two cards banging against each other having interesting interactions. That's uh, cool. I have, I have two mechanical questions. So mm -hmm. uh, for the cards in the middle, are there, are there only one copy of those or can everybody grab any number of those? I love that you asked that because, yes, they are all unique. And I like that about it a lot mm. because the uh, only – in the games that I've played, I think the, the – deck in the middle is maybe 20 different cards and in the games i've played only six to eight of those ever get bought before a game is won uh and yeah they're all unique uh and i like the theming for this idea like the miner digging underneath the wall or the tavern keeper taking money because people have to stay at the tavern uh so great. yeah all those in the middle are unique and you won't see all of them in any given game oh that's great and then on each turn, like after you play a card, does it then come back to your hand? Oh, yeah, yeah, good question. Does, nope. does uh, it stay down? It always comes back to your hand. So I could use that merchant every single turn, or that, that tavern keeper every single turn if I want, but eventually you guys know I'm going to use it, so it might behoove me to then you because it, it falls under the category of farmer so it might behoove me to then use that turn because you're assuming i'm going to use the merchant to then use that term to put down my soldier and attack you and steal your turnips right. uh, so right. uh but however this is something that the cards a few of the cards in the middle introduce uh there's this idea of exhausting a card uh, for instance, there's a veteran who's a soldier who hits really hard. He steals a bunch of turnips if a wall doesn't come up against him. But after you play him, he exhausts. And that simply means after you play him, leave him on the table for the next turn. So you can only use him every other turn. But otherwise, everybody takes up every single card. It's all It, it could all happen uh, unless this mechanic uh, of exhausting gets introduced, which only right. a few cards do. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, so uh, so far, uh, whenever we get to that point, I've before anybody can bring up Lovecraft letter, I've said, "Oh, you guys want to try Village Pillage again?" And everybody's <laughs> like, "Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Let's do that again." So now, I, now games like this are are I find them tricky sometimes because people can, with simultaneous selection like this, sometimes I I, I get the sense that people just throw up their hands at one point and they're like, "I just feel like I'm guessing. Like I don't." I don't like, you know, it just feels random to me. I'm just, I might as well just pick a random card from my hand and put it down because I, I, you know, they're like, you say that it's trying to read minds and guess what you're going to do, but really it just ends right. up 
being a more random determination thing. Now, I think the reason it's not that, Hassan, is because of these doodads that you have to buy. Uh, they're, they're not optional. Like if I'm sitting on – and the, the idea is that each village wants to become a kingdom. So the first doodad you buy is a scepter, and it costs six turnips. The second one you buy is a crown, and it costs seven turnips. And then finally you have to buy a throne, and it costs eight turnips. So if I have six turnips and I use my merchant, I don't get to buy a card in the middle. I have to spend them on – the crown on the scepter and then the crown and then the throne like once you see someone is getting a certain amount of money you know they're going to get one step closer to victory so you have to do something the two people on either if i've got uh, six dollars six turnips and you hassan are on my right and say that mike is on my left you guys know that you have to try to steal my money and i've only right. got one wall card to play to protect myself right and if i somehow get another wall card where i can put it on both sides of you i'm never going to be able to spend those turnips to actually buy the scepter. I have to do a merchant card, which leaves me vulnerable. So a lot of times it does feel random early on, but as someone starts to pull ahead and buy these little doodads and accrue turnips, the people on either side of them know, oh, we got to stop that guy from winning. Uh, but then there's this whole chain thing, like then the person across the table from me sees you and Mike trying to stop me, and they know that you guys are having to use your aggressive cards against uh, me. So uh. now they can use their aggressive cards against you. But the, so it uh, at first it feels that way, but as right. people start to win and accrue a certain amount of money. Uh, the choices become more clear, and then there's a lot more uh, guesswork and bluffing that points in a specific direction. Um, right. Right. So that's, yeah, that's, it, it, it takes cool. a shape. Yeah. 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 Um, there, as it, it, it really depends on how much information people feel like they have. You need you need some information in order to make these kind of educated guesses. Right. And I think I think it's super clever that they're they're making you play a card on either side of you. I think yeah. that that helps a lot with this this issue. The the another game I tried to introduce them to is a I think it was a Kickstarter thing it was hard to find called Imperius where you're setting it's like it's like Dune. Uh, I was gonna I was actually gonna ask you to to compare the two because um, I've been curious about Imperius and then you were talking about it on the podcast uh, I think a few weeks ago and this sounds like it has some elements similar to that. Yeah, the problem with Imperius though is there's just much more hidden information, uh, and it's it's uh, laid out over multiple turns. And I like that, by the way. I, I like how much guesswork there is in Imperius, but there's just a lot more hidden information, and you have a lot less power in terms of what you can do in any given turn. Like it's a luck of the draw in terms of what cards you get in Village Pillage. You always get every each of the four cards, and whenever you buy a card, for the most part, you can always use it every turn. Uh, there's a drafting concept in Imperius, and it's dependent on what other people do. Like, there's just a lot more blind interaction in Imperius, right. uh, and there's none of that here besides, you know, which, which – like, I know which cards you've got. I just don't know which one you're going to play against me and which one you're going to play against the person on the left side of you. Uh, hmm. But yeah, Imperius is just much more media. I think my problem with Imperius was thinking that it was a palate cleanser. Uh, right. And it's not. It's not a light game. It's just there, there's more heft to it. Uh, right. yeah. um, here, here's two more comparisons for you. And just let me know if it's if they don't make sense or if they're unfair. But how would you compare it to... Chronicle, which is another game you've talked about before, mm -hmm. and how would you compare it to 
Paper Tales, which for whatever ah. reason this kind of this kind of reminds me a little bit of Paper Tales. Yeah, uh, Paper Tales doesn't have enough direct interaction. Paper Tales is still too much. Uh, I've got my nose in my tableau and I'm trying to build something. And then when you're building something, there are occasional nods to interaction. But for the most part, we're all doing our own thing in Paper Tales, and it's super cute. And I, I like Paper Tales and how light it is. Uh, but there's just none of that direct interaction where I'm doing something directly to the people on my left and right. Uh, gotcha. Chronicle, I just, I and I, I just, the more I play Chronicle, the more I love it. That's just way too. Uh, you, you have to know all the cards in Chronicle, and it, it's a, it's a trick-taking game, and each card has a, a specific power that Chronicle's almost impossible to introduce to a new player without that new player just losing egregiously, and the danger <laughs> then being, okay, he or she will never want to play again, uh, because someone who knows Chronicle, and I kind of like this in a game, and I feel like it's, it's a, it's. A design has to decide, do I do this or do I not do it? And right. the thing I'm talking about is, does someone who knows the game, will that person always win against someone who doesn't know the game? Right. And I, I think it's a mark of good design when that's the case, but a lot of times games intentionally opt to make sure everybody has fun. So somebody who might suck at the game and be playing it for the first time, they might like accidentally win anyway. Uh, so, but Chronicle, that will never happen. Like I love how <laughs> Chronicle rewards knowing the cards, keeping track of what's out there, uh, knowing how the shifting rules can apply the interaction of, of the cards. Uh, so yeah, Village Pillage is a trifle. It, 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 is not, it should not be mentioned in the same breath as uh, Chronicle. Hassan. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, uh, I I just got uh, there's a a, a, a fellow who there, there's a game called Perdition's Mouth, which is a big old goofy. Hey, walk dudes around on on a tile and punch other dudes. It's a co-op game, and let's level up our fantasy guys while we punch uh, enemies and find treasure. Very straightforward stuff. But the, the the idea is that it uses a, a rondel which limits what your actions are. It has a it has a unique gimmick. Uh, so I I bought that uh, and the fellow sold me a, a copy for half price for a reviewer's copy, which was super kind of him. Um, and then he also said, oh, I'm going to send you this game called Darwinning, which we've also just made, and I'd I'd love for you to take a look at. Hmm. And and Darwinning looked like it was it was presented as hey, a fun game for the whole family and i kind of rolled my eyes at it and thinking oh god i don't want to make everybody play some goofy game where we're you know playing animals against each other but darwinning is a super con it's it's just like chronicle but in the in the context of this this evolution conceit where it's a trick taking game and when i win a trick i use one of those cards to improve my species and then my species can it's like evolution then my species can eat your species or i can use the card to make it more populous to absorb more damage or i can use the card to give it a special trait um but it reminded me of chronicle meets evolution and i'm hmm. super excited uh, to, to get that to the table. It was the sort of thing where you, you get a game and you, ex you your expectations are so low that of course it's going to exceed them, but it way exceeded them. Like I had no <laughs> idea it was going to... And I, 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 am, I am astonished that this is being presented as a family game because I can't imagine <laughs> showing this to like, you know, a 12-year-old child uh, and, and then creaming them because it's like super intricate trick-taking. And uh, so, right. yeah. Right. Uh, all right, so, uh, yep, there we, we have uh, Near and Far, Keyforge, uh, Village Pillage, uh, and we'll be back in two weeks to talk about other games. 
I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Hassan Lopez. Uh, we expect uh, Mike to be back from assignment in two weeks, and we'll talk to everyone then. Cheers.